Well, good morning and welcome to week number two of our series titled, The King is in Residence. And through the course of this series, what we are doing for those of you that are maybe joining us for the first time is we are diving in deep to the book of Philippians, or I should say the letter of Philippians, which is a letter written by a guy by the name of Paul as he's writing to the church in Philippi. Now, if you are familiar with scripture or familiar with the Bible, Philippians is one of those books where it's, it's short and concise, containing just over, just around 100 or so verses, but it is so packed with theological depth and theological truth that it has more kind of these memory verses than maybe many of other, many of Paul's other books. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In chapter one, verse six, we're told to be confident of this that he, God, who has begun a good work in us, will carry it on to completion. In chapter one, verse 21, it says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter two, verse five, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Chapter three, verse 14, he says, I press on toward the prize that Christ has set for me. And in chapter four, there's a lot. He talks about rejoicing in the Lord always. He talks about do not be anxious about anything. He talks about the peace of God in verse seven, which transcends all understanding how it will guard our hearts and our minds. In verse 11, he says he has learned how to be content in whatever circumstance. Verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In verse 19, he says, my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. The book of Philippians, right, it's, it's short and concise, but packed with all of this immense theological truth and theological depth. It's like that favorite movie you have that you can quote all the one-liners from, that if you sit down and watch it with someone, they're kind of shushing you and telling you to stop doing it, and you just instinctively, you, you say them, you can't stop them. That's kind of this book. But here's the danger with that, right? The danger with the book where Paul says so many profound sentences or verses is that we can tend to memorize or know these verses but lose sight of the overall context and theme of what Paul is writing about. And so what is Paul saying here? When we read the book of Philippians, what is the overarching theme, the thing that Paul wants us to walk away with? And we said this last week, and I'll, I'll say it again just so we're on the same page. His, his theme, his overarching point, the emphasis is that joy... That ultimate, true, biblical, scriptural joy is found in a life that is tethered to Jesus Christ. And I don't, I don't know where you are this morning, whatever campus you happen to be at. Maybe you're here this morning and that's, that's the very first thing that you need to hear. Is that in all of your searching, in all of your questioning, in all of your wondering, joy is found in Jesus it is a person, not an emotion. In fact, last week, if you remember, we said that recently the, the King of England just had his coronation as King Charles III. And England has this, I don't wanna say weird, strange or odd uh, tradition where people in the royal family, they have this thing called the royal standard where each member of the royal family has kind of their version of a flag. And so you, if you live in England or Great Britain or United Kingdom, I'm not sure which one to call it at different times, but they kind of have two main flags. They have the Union Jack flag, which is their typical flag that you see at all the government buildings. It's the flag that for their country. It's the flag that if something happens, it can be flown half mast. And then they have the royal 
royal standard flag. And King Charles III has his own royal standard flag. And this flag symbolizes or signifies his presence. For instance, the king may own numerous castles spread all throughout the commonwealth, but wherever he physically happens to be is where the royal standard flag is flown. When the king leaves that castle and gets in a car, the flag comes down and the car somehow, one pops up or one hangs off from it, and that is signifying that he is now in that car. When he travels by plane, that plane flies that flag. When he visits a private residence, they are required or asked or expected to fly the royal standard flag to signify, to symbolize, this is where the king is. The king is in residence. Last week we said that Paul when he's talking about his joy. He's talking about his circumstances, his, where he is, the, the experiences he had in, in planting the church in Philippi and how it wasn't what he thought. It was not plan A, not plan B, it was plan C. And then now he finds himself in prison in Rome where he desired or dreamed to come as a free person publicly proclaiming the good news and the gospel of Jesus, but instead he's there in chains. And we said that Paul, despite his circumstances, Despite what is going on around him, he is overflowing with joy. Why? Because joy is a person, not a situation. Joy is the flag that is flown from the castle of our hearts when Jesus lives there. Joy is not dependent on the things around us. It is independent of our circumstances. And Paul is writing this letter in prison and he says, I am overwhelmed with joy. And, and joy, if it flies from the flag, it's, it's the kind of joy that when we walk into a situation and we know it's a difficult situation, we know the circumstances are hard and they're bad, we don't walk in expecting to receive joy or let it affect us. No, we walk in bearing the king, bringing joy everywhere we go because he flies in residence in our heart. And so Paul's writing from prison and he says, I have overwhelming joy because the message and the good news of Jesus is being proclaimed. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two is where we will be. If you don't have a physical copy of your Bible with you, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, download the Mount app. In the Mount app, you can find uh, scripture references, you can find sermon notes, but you can also find all the other things you'll need to stay plugged in around here. You can find calendar of events and ways to contact us and all of those things. Or if you're here joining us for the very first time, man, you are welcome to just kind of watch on the screen and all of our scripture references will be there, but Philippians chapter two is where we're gonna be, and it begins in this chapter, verses one and two. Paul writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if there is any tenderness and compassion, so he's like, listen, if you are unified, if you have any of these things, he says, then, verse two, make my joy complete. Let's pause for a second because this is important and we don't wanna miss this, right? Like this is Paul's most personal letter out of all of them that he writes to the various churches, right? He, he, he's writing to people that he knows, people that he met, his, his personal friends, people that he, he prayed with, people that he, he prayed for, people that he went through difficult circumstances with. He's writing to them as a personal friend who cares deeply about them. Not only that, he is writing a personal thank you letter to them because of something that they have done for him. 
If you remember from last week, we said that there was a season in Paul's ministry where he was trying to raise some money for a significant need back at the church in Jerusalem, the the Israelite church, and he needed some money for this, and he was taking up offerings, but the Philippians, out of not out of their abundance, but out of their scarcity, out of their sacrifice, they gave above and beyond to give him, to bless him, to further the mission and the message and the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And so Paul, while he might not normally accept this type of gift, he accepts it from them and he writes this letter personally thanking them. So on what you have two hands, I want you to imagine this here. You have Paul writing this letter to personal friends, thanking them for how their faithfulness and support has brought him joy. And then on the other hand, he's sitting in prison telling them, I have joy because even though I am in chains, the message, the mission, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is being proclaimed to the guards here and to the bold believers in Rome who are stepping up and sharing their faith. I have joy for both of these reasons and I'm overflowing. But then he says, to make my joy complete. In other words, Paul is saying is even though I am thankful and have joy at your faithfulness, and even though I am in prison and seeing God's word move forward, and I have joy for that, there's still something lacking. There's still something missing. And what Paul's gonna do is he's gonna show them, and maybe he would show us the very same thing today, that it would make his joy complete if the Philippians, the people in Philippi, would begin to live the abundant life that God has designed them and called them to live. And I don't, I don't know about you this morning, but I, I can't help but wonder sometimes even in my life, if we fall into these ruts and these routines where it seems like we wake up every day or we go to bed every night and we're asking ourselves, is this really what life is supposed to be? What am I missing? What's, what's not right? Why, why don't I feel this abundant, thriving, flourishing life that I thought I would feel and expected to feel. And so Paul's gonna write to them and he's gonna say, make my joy complete, verse two. He says, make my joy complete. What? Like, how are they supposed to do this? He says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. That word like-minded in the original language that Paul writes in the Greek language is actually the word to think. And so what Paul is saying here is, if you take those three things he says, by one mind, by one love, he's basically saying, you will make my joy complete by thinking the same way. And for Paul, if you are a scholar of Paul in any way, you'll recognize that the topic of thinking was important for Paul. In fact, not just for Paul, but all throughout scripture, we see the significance and the importance of the way that we think. For Paul, there was such a significance in the way that we think that almost every letter he writes to every church, he mentions it in some way or another. He tells the church in Corinth, and you may know this, he says to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. He tells the church in Colossae, Colossians, he says to set your mind on the things above. And later in this book, in chapter four, he's gonna tell the Philippians to think on things that are noble and pure and right and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Because for Paul, and what you see all throughout scripture is the way that we think shapes the way we live. The way that we think shapes the way we live. Our thoughts determine our actions. 
Because it's interesting, when you look all throughout scripture, I think we see this, right? Every single time there is a significant moment or a significant event, it is always because someone thought something first. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the garden, back in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve are in this state of perfection, and if you know the story, Eve takes the fruit and she eats it and sin and rebellion enter the world. Before she took that fruit, she had a thought, the thought that that looks good and I wanna be like God. Jesus, before he sacrificially laid down his life on the cross, he had a thought in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. The way we think impacts what we do. In fact, I would say that one day you're gonna, you're gonna die and as your children are telling stories to their children about you and as your grandchildren are sharing stories to their grandchildren about you, we hope and we dream that they're gonna be telling about the things that we did and the things that we did and we, we think that our life is this summary of all the things that we have done in life, our careers, our, our vacations, our dreams, our goals, all the things that we have done, but guess what? Every single thing that you will ever do in your life is because you thought something first. There is power in our thoughts. The way we think shapes the way we live. Our thoughts determine our actions. And so Paul is telling the church in Philippi, he says, complete my joy by thinking a certain way. And then he's gonna go into what that looks like. And in verse three, he says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I'm gonna stop there. I don't know if you know this, but this, this is gonna blow your mind, okay? So just, just bear with me for a minute. In Greek, that word nothing, fascinating. It means nothing. It literally means, like, there's no, there's no hidden agenda here. It literally means nothing. So what Paul is telling them is he's saying, listen, I want you to think, to make my joy complete by thinking the same thing. And he says, do nothing out of selfishness. Now, you, you guys are a, a group of incredibly smart people at all of our campuses and joining us online. You have been following the Lord, many of you, for a very long time, others of you for a short season, but you are passionate and excited, and you may be much more spiritual than I am, but I don't know about you, but there are moments in my life, especially when my sinful, fleshly nature begins to rise back up, that it seems like almost everything I do is out of selfish ambition and selfishness. I have a tendency if I'm not careful, to make life about me. My wants, my desires, my wishes, my plans, my dreams, my hopes, my future, all of these things. What about you? Like if you were just mentally running through how much of your daily actions or maybe even your daily thoughts are about you? about what you want and your desires and your dreams and your wishes. And I'm not trying to, to shame you or to convict you in this moment. I want us to realize that this is just who we are. It's, it's part of our DNA from the very beginning. Right? What happens when a baby is born? A baby knows that if I cry, I will get what I want. I will get fed, I will get changed, I will get picked up, I will get burped, I will get somebody to come and go to me and make me laugh. Something will happen that will make me have my needs be met. And that's deeply embedded in us. It's a survival instinct. But what happens is because of the fall, because of our sinful nature, is that over time, the thing that was meant for survival has become our daily operating procedure. And here's what happens. 
we become a toddler and we get upset that our dad is giving our little sibling more attention and so we act out and throw a fit to get what we want. We become a little bit older as a child and we desperately want more privileges than the other siblings and so we fight for those, we want those, we beg for those. We become an adult and so much of our lives is about making us happy. What do we want? We want the right education, the right career, the right office, the right job, the right location, the right neighborhood, the right house, the right car, the right vacations, and the list goes on and on and on. And so much of our thought life is about what makes us happy, what brings us joy. Deep inside of us, we think that life, that that, that elusive thing known as joy is something we have to grasp for, to get, to find, to search, to lay our hands on and pull it close because then and only then will we truly find joy. Like, let me just really get in your business this morning, okay? Do you find yourself at a place in your life where it seems like you are always grasping or striving to get something that will bring you joy? And I'm not talking that it's always materialistic. It might be a relationship. It might be an emotion. It might be praise from other people. But you're trying to get it, to grasp for it, to create it, to find it. Paul continues, he says, listen, do nothing out of selfishness. And he gives the antithesis. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. A couple years ago, it's probably four or five years ago, I had the privilege and the honor of going skydiving. Now, I recognize that in a room across all of our campuses in Northern Virginia, there's some of you, you go skydiving every day for your job. It's just what you do. Like jumping out of a plane is just a normal thing for you. My job is not as cool as yours. I wish it was. Um, we can switch if you want. I'll jump out of planes for a while and you do other things. But I got to go one time and it was really, really fun. If you've never been skydiving though, it is the most terrifying thing you will ever do in your life. One, I feel like the plane that I, I was in Memphis, Tennessee, so that should tell you something. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, and I think the plane that we were using was sold from the Cold War era on the black market. <laughs> I swear I saw duct tape on the wings. And we get in this thing, and some of you, when you skydive, you're by yourself, you get to jump out of here. I'm strapped to a middle-aged man. Not the most uncomfortable, like not the most comfortable thing. And so we get on this plane and we're sitting down and, you know, we're taking off. And I mean, I swear, the, it's vibrating, it's bumping, the wings are flapping like a bird. Like, this is not going to go well. We're getting out of the plane one way or another. It's either going down with us or we're jumping, right? And so we're on there. And the lady in front of me, you know, when they get to the altitude, you're at 14, 15,000 feet, whatever it is. And they say, okay, let's get ready to jump. I wish there was like that red light that came on, but there wasn't. It was just an old guy saying, get out of the plane. And so we kind of have to start to stand up while you're attacking to someone and you're kind of walking like this and this lady in front of me, right, she gets to the edge and the person who's going to video you goes out before and they're hanging on the top of the plane looking down at you. This lady in front of me gets to the edge and they were like, okay, one, two, and she grabbed the sides and they were like, three, and she's like, nope. 
And they're like, we're gonna miss our target. We've gotta go. And they're like, one, two, three. She's like, not letting go. And they're like trying to push her, you know, like one, two, three, like this. And she's like holding them back and just screaming like, Lord, what am I doing? And she's just screaming. And I don't know, at some point, I think they like karate chopped her arms and then jumped just to get her to go. And she goes flying out. And I knew in that moment, like no matter how scared I am, I do not want my video of me going, no, right? Like this dude's like looking in my face. And so I get up there to the edge of the the thing and I'm looking down and it's a long ways down, just in case you've ever wondered. And it's fast and it's windy. And everything in me, when the guy goes one, and I swear he counted like one per hour. It was so slow. He was like one. Everything in me, even after I saw her, everything in me wanted to grab that plane. And I was like, no, don't do this. Two, and I'm like, no, you know, everything in me. And then you jump. And if you've ever been, it's not terrifying. It's not scary. It is the most peaceful, calm feeling. You feel like you're not even moving. It's, so, it's just incredible. And here's what I know. Naturally, everything in me wanted to hold on tight. But I would have never experienced the joy I felt until I let go. Some of you. You are searching for joy in your life, desperately grabbing and reaching and hoping and praying and grasping, thinking if I just grab blank tight enough, this, this praise, this job, this promotion, this thing, this, 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 whatever it is, if I just grab it tight enough, then and only then will I finally have joy. And listen, what Paul is telling the church in Philippi is he's saying, listen, True joy is found when you let go. Maybe today you need to let go. Let go of your wants. Let go of your desires. Let go of the thing that you think will complete you. Just let go. He continues, verse five. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, or if you want to write the word attitude, as Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul doesn't tell them. He doesn't say, here's what you do. No, no, no. He says, here's how you think. He says, I want you to have the same attitude, the same mindset as Jesus. In other words, he said, I want you to, to think like Jesus. Why? Because remember, we've said this already for Paul, the way we think shapes the way we live. Our thoughts determine our actions. If you're writing notes down, you might write this down. It says, if you want to live like Jesus lived, you need to think like Jesus thought. If you want to live like Jesus lived, you need to think like Jesus thought. Growing up as a child in the late 80s and early 90s, I had two role models in my life. These guys were incredible, fascinating. I idolized them. I wanted to be them. It was not my parents. It was not somebody I actually knew. It was Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods. Thank you, not LeBron. There we go, see? And man, I studied these guys. I watched everything they did, and I desperately wanted to be them. For instance... 
I would watch Michael Jordan. And as much as we think Michael Jordan's like signature move is that one shot of him at the slam dunk contest, jumping from half court line, dunking it. He never did that in any games. That's not his signature move. Michael Jordan's signature move was to cross over and then do a fadeaway with his tongue out. And so he would do this fadeaway. And so I studied the way he did fadeaways. I was watching SportsCenter on DVR. I was using a VHS tape to record SportsCenter before we had it. I was making sure every time I was ever shooting, I was doing some sort of fadeaway. I was sticking out my tongue. I was winking at people. I was really diving into this. In fact, still today, it's been like 20 something years. If you and I were to go play a game of pickup basketball, 90% of the shots I do is a fadeaway. Why? Because I wanted to do what Jordan did. Then when I got into golf, Tiger Woods was on the scene. And man, I remember when I started playing golf and I would watch Tiger Woods, I would study what he did. And so every day when I would go play golf, if it was a tournament, I was wearing a red polo. Every day was Sunday. Like it just, even in my school team, our colors were blue and I'd show up with a red polo and the coach is like, you can't wear that. I don't care. That's what Tiger did. One time he got so frustrated at me, I put a polo over the red one. And then when he disappeared, I took the polo off and I wanted the red one. The other thing Tiger did, Tiger always went for it. It could be a whole 700 yards, all water. I'm like, coach, I got this. I'm going for it. And he's like, Adam, you are not Tiger Woods. I'm not going to do it. The other thing, and if you remember Tiger, Tiger had this thing where he would putt, and if the putt went in, he's like, oh, yeah, right? I would think a two-inch putt and start cheering like that. I would go crazy. I was on the putting green practicing, fist pumping, going crazy with my red polo on. 90% of the time, if we go play today, I'm probably going to show up with a red polo, and I'm going to fist pump at some point. It is still what I do. I wanted to be like them. So I copied what they did. It's interesting that as I got older and I started meeting with mentors, learning leadership principles from people, I realized I could care less what they did. I wanna know what they thought, right? If I'm sitting down with somebody, I don't wanna ask them. If I've got 30 minutes with them, I don't wanna say, tell me what you did last Tuesday. No, no, I wanna say, when you walked into that meeting and you knew it was do or die, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? How did you process what you were about to do and how it was about to come out? What were you thinking in those moments? Why? Because how we think determines what we do. There was an interview with Michael Jordan later in life I call him MJ because we're close friends like that. But there was an interview with MJ where, I don't know if you know this, but he was actually cut from his high school varsity team because the coach said he was not good enough. I don't know what that coach's problem was. But, uh, so, so when they asked Michael Jordan, they said, well, like, what happened after that? And he said, I got up every single day and I practiced every single morning, 5, 5.30 a.m. I just practiced and I practiced and I practiced. You're like, okay, I'm gonna go practice like that. But in the documentary that came out recently called The Last Dance, there's a fascinating scene where they're asking him why he thought about certain things. And Michael Jordan, when he says this, and I just want you to hear his thought process. He says, if you're trying to achieve something, there will be roadblocks. I've had them, everybody has. But an obstacle does not have to stop you. If you run into a wall, you don't turn around and give up. You figure out how to climb it, how to go through it, how to work around it, or how to dig under it. The way he thought was no obstacle is permanent. There's always an option. It's not what he did, it's how he thought. You wanna live like Jesus lived? Think like Jesus thought. You wanna do what he did? Think 
like he thought. Now, we read this, and you might be like, but Paul, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. How, how, how am I supposed to know what Jesus thought? I'm not a mind reader. Like, I, that's impossible. I can't, I can't look at scripture and be like, oh, I see what he was thinking when he was doing this by healing people. No, no, no. Paul's gonna say, listen, you can know what Jesus thought, and I'm gonna show you in the following verses. So verse six and seven, look at this. He says, Jesus, who was being in the very nature God, so he was God, he was the same as God. He did not consider equality that's a key word, with God something to be used to his own advantage. Another key word, we're gonna come back to these. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, another key word there. So let's pause because what Paul says here is incredibly theologically deep and rich and we could easily just kind of pass by this and think, oh, Jesus was supposed to be humble. That's not exactly what Paul is saying here. So remember, everything that Paul is saying is part of the overarching theme of joy. The Greek word for advantage here, that word that he says advantage, is actually the word plunder, steal, snatch, take by force, or grasp. In fact, that's why the English Standard Version translates that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so don't miss this. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, he's using the word equality and the word grasping, taking, stealing, plundering, robbing. Some translations actually believe it means the word rape, like it's taking something forcefully that was not yours. And so what Paul's saying here is when he ties those two words together, he is immediately and inherently pointing the Philippians back to the very beginning of their Hebrew scriptures. He's pointing them back to the Garden of Eden and he's pointing them back to a situation, a moment where someone did something that was the complete opposite of what he's describing here, right? If you know the story, you're familiar with this. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they have perfect joy. They are naked and feel no shame. That is perfect joy for a man with his wife. They have everything they could ever want. They are able to walk freely in the garden and talk to God. They are able to converse with God. God is there in the cool of the day with them. Everything is perfect. It's perfection. But Eve, what did Satan tell her? You can be like God, have equality with God. And so she reached and she grasped. She snatched. She stole. She took. She plundered. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, Eve thought the way to joy was to be like God and she was willing to steal and plunder and snatch to get that. But if you think like Jesus, being like God is not important and grasping and snatching and getting is not important. Instead, you're a servant. You give. Paul is telling them, complete my joy. Think like Jesus. What did Jesus think? He thought giving was better than getting. He became a servant. And this is the paradox that Paul wants us to see. You see, everything in us Everything around us, our culture, our society, our gut, our sin, our flesh, tells us that joy is found in getting, right? We get more praise. We get more wealth. We get more pleasure. We get more blank. You fill in the blank, whatever it is. You have something in your mind. If you could just get that, then you would feel joy. Then you would feel peace. Then you would feel rest. And Paul says, no, no, no. 
Joy is not found in getting joy because the kingdom of God is countercultural. It's upside down. It's flipped. It's not what we think. Joy is not found in getting. It's found in giving. Because here's what Paul knows. Remember chapter one. Joy is not something we get because joy is a person. We have joy and by giving, our joy is increased. I'm gonna say that again. Joy is not something you get. You don't go through life expecting one day to get joy, to find joy, to feel better. No, joy is something, for those of you that are in Christ, joy is something you have internally living inside you. It is the flag that is flying from your heart, but that joy is increased through your sacrifice, through your service, and you being a servant to other people. It is increased through how you give. Now, We see this all throughout scripture, right? It is better to give than to receive. Paul begins this book. In other books, he may start off by saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In this one, he says, I, apostle, a servant, or I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And that phrase he uses there, servant, is the very same one he's using when he's describing Christ's attitude, servant. It's this phrase, doulos, which means slave, It's someone who is so bound to the will of their master that they can only do what that person did. And what we're seeing in modern society is that even secular sociologists are saying, wait, wait, maybe we missed something here. There is an immense amount of joy that comes through serving others. Joy is increased by serving others. So what about you? Do you find yourself at this place in your life where you could use more joy? Where it feels like you're running the rat race, going through the motions, waking up and going to bed, the same thing every single day, and it feels joyless, and you could use more. I wonder, are you serving others or grasping and getting for what you think you need? What's your attitude? That's the paradox, right? Your joy is increased by serving others. And here's what I know. We live in a very broken world right now, and it needs your service. In fact, just at our Fredericksburg campus, We went to two services just this fall, or just this spring. And I guarantee you that if you went up to Caleb today and said, Caleb, man, I've been sitting on the sidelines. I'm ready to attend one and serve one. Where do you need me? He has hundreds of places where you could jump in and serve and kids and students and parking lot and all over that church to help them reach one more person. At this campus here in Stafford, we announced last week that we're going to three services in August. And guess what? We need you serving. This is a a perfect time for you to to step up and say, I'm willing to give, I'm willing to attend one and serve one. Why? Because let me just paint a small picture for you. I could paint you pictures of our kids ministry, our student ministry, our guest services team, all of those, but our parking lot team, specifically them, we have a group of men who they are so worn out, they are so tired, they are so stressed because we have very few people helping in that area that they are serving both services every single week, regardless of the weather, and they are out there pouring their time and their energy and the investment to being the front 
front door to our church where every person who comes in and turns on their hazards for the very first time, those are the very first people they see, and they would love to have your help. And you say, man, I don't, I don't want to stand outside in the rain. You'll find more joy there than you will buying that thing you wanted to buy. You will find more satisfaction and fulfillment going to Senegal, going to Rwanda, going to Guatemala, going to Honduras than you ever will grasping and getting for the thing you think will make you happy. Because joy is increased in our serving. And I get it. Like I'm not, I'm not naive. You've got your excuses. And I, I'm not here to tell you this morning, like, your excuses aren't worth anything. Like, your, your excuses are valid. Like, as your pastor, I want you to hear that. You are busy. That is a valid excuse. You do have a lot going on. That is a valid excuse. It might not be the right time for your family. That is a very valid excuse. Don't ever let anyone tell you those aren't good excuses. But here's what I know. Joy is increased in our serving, and serving should involve a sacrifice. In fact, listen to how Paul finishes this passage when he talks about the attitude of Jesus. Verse 8, he says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Serving cost Jesus something but he found joy in that sacrifice. Serving cost Paul something, but he found joy in that sacrifice. Serving should always cost you something. It's not something we do only when it's convenient, when we're not busy or when things aren't crazy or chaotic or any of that, no, no, no. Paul says Jesus was a servant, a slave. Paul says, I am a servant, a slave. He uses an identity statement. In other words, Paul says it's not something we do, it's who we are. Listen, if you want momentary happiness in your life, serve yourself. If you want lasting, true, ultimate joy, Paul says think like Jesus and serve others by sacrificing and stop grasping and getting and give. I'll close with this. You may say, man, I, I just can't do that. Like it goes against everything I think and I feel. That's Paul's point. But listen to how he ends this in nine through, or nine through 13. He says, because of Jesus' sacrifice, he says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 11, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, or Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And he says, therefore, verse 12, so now he goes back to them. He says, therefore, because of all of this, because of this attitude that he did where he sacrificed, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now how much more in my absence. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. In other words, what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, everything in you, your natural self wants to grasp and get and get because you think that will make you happy. But that's the point of the good news of Jesus is that he lives in you. And when he is working in you, when his will is being moved in you, you will begin to lay down your wants and desires and serve him and you will find immense joy. 
That's kind of the summary of chapter one and two. Paul says, you want joy in your life? Chapter one, put God first. Chapter two, put others second. That is how you find joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for your word and for the way you use Paul, the great theologian, to shape and mold our minds and our hearts. In the the stillness and the the quietness of this moment across all of our campuses, I'm just curious, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm just curious if you're here this morning and you would say, man, Adam, so much of my life is about getting, grasping, and trying to make myself feel joy by getting. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that God will wreck you that he will show you the truth that joy is found in service and sacrifice. Father, I pray for every heart that feels that tug, that you would show them through your power a small glimpse of what it means to serve and to sacrifice, to find the immense joy that comes from it. God, I pray that we would not be a church that does what Jesus did. We would be a church first and foremost that thinks like Jesus thought. So we continue praying in this moment. Maybe you're here today and I said that joy is a person. It is Jesus and true joy is only found when he resides in your heart and it is from an overflow of a personal relationship with him. If you are being honest at whatever campus you are at, you would say that you don't know Jesus in that personal way. And can I just say, that's okay. We've all been there. But that's the beauty of Jesus. Even when you don't know him, he knows you. And he longs for you to know him. So much so that Paul says he left his heavenly throne to come and die for you so that you could know him. If you want to pray that prayer today and just say, Jesus, I want to know you for the first time in my life in a personal relationship, just in the stillness of this moment, would you just slip up your hand, whatever campus you are at? Jesus, I surrender to you. Be my Lord. Be my King. If you raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner and I need your love. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new be my king. Jesus, today I turn, I repent, and I run to you. And in you, I find forgiveness and lasting joy. And everyone said, amen.